Welcome back to mid-1962 with Andy and me. I'm Larry. I'm Andy. As always, uh, we're looking at the Beatles and their world 60 years ago. So, Andy, uh, they're still not world famous in mid-1962. They're still not widely known outside of the northwest of England. Uh, only recording industry people in the South may have seen their name randomly mentioned in the music press, rarely. Maybe once in Disc Magazine, somewhere in the middle of some paragraph somewhere. And they've now played live sets in Manchester uh, that's broadcast by the BBC. Yeah, the latest would go out at 5pm on June 15th across the UK. 1.8 million listeners. Still not household names, but probably noticed by more than a few listeners far and wide. In Europe, uh, they're big only in one city, Hamburg. There, only by uh, those who venture into the red light district. Um, you're going there, aren't you? I am uh, next week. Well, it'll be. I'll be back by the time you hear this. So, <laughs> you're going to venture into the red light district? I do plan to. I do plan to. Um, I can't take my family with me though. The Reeperbahn. Yeah. And you can make your own, like, vomit on the floor and put cigarettes out in it and stuff? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The thing. The thing. <laughs> now the boys are back in Liverpool um, after a lucrative residency at the Star Club in Hamburg. Uh, it's an interesting period now because they've been promised a contract with EMI, which we talked about in the last episode. Mm -hmm. They have a test recording at EMI on June 6th. Uh, why don't you blast us through their probable collective state of mind in June 1962? Wait, let me play the Where We Go In theme music. Ah, yes. But they're obviously looking forward to their first recording session for EMI, and they're welcomed back home to the Cavern, where they play 12 straight shows, the only interruption being the day that they travel to Manchester to record those songs that would be broadcast by BBC Radio on June 15th. And when they had a minute here and there, John and Paul were busy writing the songs that would soon be heard by everyone, even 60 years later. Mm. From all appearances, things were looking up about as much as they ever had. Very exciting. The writing, though, what do you make of that? The Beatles were always 
consciously differentiating themselves from competition, right? Once they heard they were signed, uh, Lennon and McCartney got back to songwriting with gusto. At this time in the UK, the recording industry's perspective was that the uh, supply of guitar groups was huge, but there wasn't a great demand for it, they thought, you know, on record. Most such groups would have had one front person who sang. I don't know, a few A&R men would choose to waste their time recording a group like this. Yeah. If they did, the assumption would be that a group would perform songs written by songwriters. And what we'll see in the future, Jerry and the Pacemakers hits will be written by Mitch Murray. But was the trend so clear-cut and unambiguous, though? I mean, there had been recording artists in America writing their own songs. You had Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly. Weren't there some in the UK? Some, but not many. I, I did a quick check of British number one songs by British artists and found only four songs that reached the top spot between 1952 and 1962 that were written by the artists themselves. Huh. Two were instrumentals, basically done by session musicians. Then there was My Old Man's a Dust Man ah. by Lonnie Donegan. <laughs> <laughs> and most interestingly to me, the only rock and roll song was Shaken All Over, written by Johnny Kidd and recorded by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Awesome. I came across a really interesting newspaper article from October of 1962 in the NME, the New Musical Express, that made it very clear how shocking it was that a group, in this case the Beatles, would be writing their own material. And in case you're interested, because I was, good old Cliff Richard himself did not have a writing credit on any single he released, whether or not it reached number one, until Bachelor Boy, which came out in November of 1962, eight weeks after the Beatles released Love Me Do. Aha. Huh. Uh -huh. Oh, and, and whether or not it, it matters, I'll just throw in here that Cliff Richard's producer, Nori, uh, George Martin's nemesis, <laughs> Nori Paramore, would have been completely aware that the Beatles were writing their own songs. Right. So, and like he, he, he noticed that Cliff was probably catching on. Yeah. Man. So the Beatles are already, already messing with other artists or displacing them or replacing them or something, <laughs> you know? Something. They are disruptors. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, the industry had all sorts of norms, and the Beatles started breaking them right from the start. Later, we'll hear our friend Tim Summer explain how normal it was for London studios to use session drummers. Hmm. Obviously, the Beatles wouldn't accept that norm. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our 21st century minds around early 60s British record company routines. But ironically, a lot of what's different now changed in part because the Beatles and George Martin set their own standards and practices all those years ago. The tricky, tricky, tricky aspect of this particular episode for us is that there's a very specific tipping point in the Beatles' personal relationship with Parlophone halfway through the first meeting, at the end of the first recording test. What's tricky is that the boys went into the meeting awkwardly, 
George Martin and the producer and engineer went into it coolly, routinely, but the power of the Beatles' charisma and the discovery that they had compatible worldviews with the guys who ran this quirky label, after all, it is a quirky label. It is. It was a remarkable, magical moment. Suddenly, these strangers could see each other like in their full, wonderful, oddball humanity. <laughs> now, I don't know this for a fact. You and I weren't there. We have to be very careful all the time with our history. Oh, yeah. But this is all based around a quote that, you know, an interview that uh, um, George Martin gave to Mark Lewis. And so. Right, yeah. We find those guys pretty reliable, though. Oh, yeah. Um, now, the routine lecturing after the session was necessary, but. Had they not ended the meeting with this unexpected warmth, the day could have ended with a kind of disappointed, blah, meh, uncertain feel. <laughs> That's what I think. I'm making a small quotation into a kind of docudrama well, a little bit here. And so people have to take this with a grain of salt, but I'm guessing it's correct. Having been in situations like this and... We know these people pretty well. I think I think we're, this is pretty on. What do you think? Likely pretty accurate. They were meant for each other, but they didn't realize it until the day had uh, nearly ended. As we all know, the Beatles, George Martin, and their engineers together would become one of the decade's most confidently, iconoclastically innovative teams in the recording industry. But all through this session, they don't know that yet. For most of that first day, neither side, not the group nor the studio, knew really what to make of each other. In our minds, we have to imagine our boys in Abbey Road Studio 2 feeling nervous, not really knowing where things are going. They're aware of their own genius and charm as a live act, but they have no idea how they'll uh, go over as recording artists. George Martin delegates production to Ron Richards, maintaining for himself a kind of a cool power distance from these northern youth that EMI had dropped on him. Martin was aware that the boys wrote songs. He remained unimpressed, but this would have been seen as noteworthy by some, I guess. Um, publisher Sid Coleman, we talked about last episode, mm -hmm. he wanted the songs. Brian was pushing the songwriting as a feature. Paul and John had really been getting into it lately. They've been working at it since they got that telegram in Germany from Brian yeah. that they'd been signed to EMI, they'd really been, yeah. you know, focused on songwriting. Now, how did these original songs go over? Well, it does get a little tricky here. Um, as much as Sid Coleman liked the songs and didn't care about the quality of the recordings, since he would, would be fine just giving the songs to some other artist... George Martin was only interested in how the group sounded because regardless of the song, um, you know, they would have to record anything he wanted them to, you know, anyway. Mm, right. Yeah. And so Martin was quoted in Melody Maker uh, almost a decade later uh, as saying about the first Beatles recordings he ever heard. And that happened in February of 1962. And he said, I wasn't very knocked out at all. It was a pretty lousy tape, recorded in a back room, very badly balanced, not very good songs, and a rather raw group. 
ouch, mm. Mm. will probably mention in the future that Martin uh, would come very close to making the Beatles release How Do You Do It? written by Mitch Murray as their first single that actually ultimately went to Jerry and the Pacemakers, right? Um, so he wasn't won over by the songs that quickly. But now... You know, taking our time machine back to the future, to 2022, we know, of course, that the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team would become one of the most successful in the late 20th century and would change our world. It's just incredible to think that on the 6th of June, 60 years ago, they weren't yet confident writers, though the songs were pretty great. But again, sorry if I'm dwelling too much on this, it wasn't their material or their playing that would win George Martin over at first. That just amazes me. Yeah, something else. Right? It's something else. What could it be? The trousers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it was the trousers, surely. <laughs> now, as we've already emphasized, the day needs to be separated into two parts. Part one... Martin drops by, hears nothing special, and sees a group of young northerners bumbling their way through the studio recording. Part two, he finds out what they're actually like as people. They really charm him, and he's suddenly really interested in working with them. It's like ending the day with a world-changing gestalt switch. Mm-hmm. Brian, if we recall, half a year earlier, would be struck by their sound on stage as he walked down into the cavern. And then when he talked to them, he was, you know, um, impressed by their personal charm. Right. In reverse order, the guys at EMI reacted to the Fab's personalities first, music later. Interesting that both would care about both, yeah. would, would notice both. You don't get the Beatles with just their music. Yeah, that's true. We're going to skip the usual uh, trivia about this historic day. You know, debate whether it was a recording session, a test, or an audition. What's the distinction there, and why would it matter? People go on and on about EMI deciding to fire Pete. And again, that's not really what was important about this day. It, it's not exactly even true. It's No. Our friend Tim will explain later in the episode, in this episode, what else's common trivia about this day um ah people celebrate george harrison's dry cheeky one-liner right yeah yes that's the turning point actually but what really matters according to sir george martin is what happened after he broke the ice uh, Sir George was not expecting it. By the way, Andy and I, we know <laughs> that Martin wasn't knighted until the mid-1990s. Oh, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> we say Sir George because there are two Georges in our story now, and it gets so tiring, doesn't it, having to say full names all the time? Yeah. In 1962, let's consider it our nickname for him. Maybe we'll call Harrison, I don't know, what do we call him? Uh, Cheeky George. Okay, so we have yeah. Sir, Sir George and Cheeky George. S Sir George and Cheeky George. <laughs> so Andy. Yeah. 
Part two of June 6 begins after they're called up into the mixing desk room. What's it called? The control room, yeah. right? Isn't it up a bunch of stairs in Studio Two? It is, yeah, right. There was a stairway up to it, yeah. Right, right. Uh, Sir George uh, talks to them, and he talks them through all the issues, and the group sits silently, according to him. Uh, taking in the lecture until he asks whether they have trouble or find anything, uh, any problem with anything he said so far. Right. I, this is the story we all know, right? That's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's told it in a million interviews. You can go on YouTube and see That's... like five different interviews where he's told the story. Exactly. <laughs> and then Cheeky George tells Sir George that he, he doesn't like his tie. Well, I don't like your tie for a start. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing is, it's not just a funny anecdote, and it's not just an icebreaker, but it's the turning point in the whole relationship. <sighs> I have to. Am I overemphasizing? Am I wigging out here? <laughs> no. It's true. Can you set the scene for us? Yeah. Ron Richards was running the recording session, and Sir George didn't arrive, or at least didn't make his presence known, until they were recording Love Me Do. And whether he cared for the song or not, Martin did have to put in his two cents about John's lead vocal mixing with the harmonica. Oh, yeah, this is funny. Someone else has got to sing Love Me Do. Because you're going to have a song called Love Me Wah. <laughs> nice. I have a tendency to believe that he must have had some interest in overseeing things because he could have just left. But instead, he stayed until all the recording was finished and invited our boys into the control room for what would turn out to be what engineer Ken Townsend would call giving them a good talking to. <laughs> mm. John, Paul, Cheeky, and Pete didn't say a word, mm. even when Sir George finished his critique. And as you pointed out, there's the cheeky quote that went down in history uh, when Martin asked them if there's anything they didn't like. Well, I don't like your tie for the start. So, yeah, maybe I'm not um, exaggerating this because even Townsend says the air was pretty thick. Yeah. Uh, cheeky George played the same role with Brian, if we recall, at their first important meeting back at NEMS up in Liverpool. <laughs> His suggestion to them that he managed them. That's what the meeting was. And so he was pretty nervous. And, you know, when you're negotiating a new business relationship or new business relationships with people you don't know well, the air can be awkwardly thick. Um, yeah. This conscious or subconscious feeling like, can I really work with these guys? I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, and Paul woke up late and was in the bath as everyone else had already assembled. You know, that's on the other side of town. And then George says... Well, he's late, but he's very clean. It is the exact same role George played in both situations, because I think that that... Yeah, it's an incredible thing, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. He's got a gift, or he had a gift. Yeah. Rest, rest his soul. Anyway, back to London. Well, the ice was broken, and they spent about the next 20 minutes just in, enjoying each other's company. Sir George told Mark Lewison in that interview in the year 2000... I did think they had enormous talent. It wasn't their music. It was their charisma. I thought, if they have this effect on me, they're going to have that effect on their audiences. 
it is a pretty incredible thing that Sir George was won over by personality. Historic, even. Mm. And though he wouldn't have imagined their future success, of course, the impression they made on him would be eventually world-changing. Certainly, we know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the benefit of hindsight, of course. From what Sir George revealed to Lewis in there, he's implying that he could envision, however vaguely, in this first meeting, the impression the Beatles would make if and when they'd grow in popularity. It's a hindsight memory decades later, but credible, I'd say. Mm -hmm. I could attempt to demonstrate the importance of those 20 minutes with an imaginable didn't-happen scenario. <laughs> uh, people do hate the use of counterfactuals in history, uh, also known as what-ifs. What if? What if Eleanor Roosevelt could fly? Yes, right? that's right. <laughs> but if Cheeky George hadn't broken the ice, they might have finished the day heading back to Liverpool in the van, Neil driving, feeling all sorts of doubts. Next session in London, it would be, it would still be Ron producing them and they'd still have songs that probably would have songs pushed on them more easily. <laughs> they even, they tried anyways. They did try, yeah. Pushing songs on them. We'll get there. <laughs> yes. And they'd have a session drummer forever. But all that didn't happen. Suddenly the two teams, Team Parlophone and Team Beatle, see each other the I-thou relationship. Hmm. They see each other as three-dimensional collaborators with oddly compatible worldviews that transcend their age differences, transcend the north-south prejudices, and transcends the gap in studio know-how. There, there must have been an unspoken understanding that although they weren't equals in the studio, they had a mutual interest in a kind of freedom yet to come. Uh, to be something new and fresh, per perhaps. Mm. My what-if may have been overstated. I mean, even if they didn't get to know each other for real in that first meeting, surely Team Parlophone and Team Beetle would eventually get to know each other for real. And together they could produce as if a, I don't know, a hybrid of Cliff and Ray Cathode and Bruce yeah. <laughs> Channel, the Shirelles, and Peter Sellers, all yeah. mixed up in a bucket. Yeah. They had the right shared sensibilities for something different, a unique set of influences and borrowings. These first years as a team must have been so uh, mutually, what's the word, self-actualizing. Yeah. Speaking of charisma and edginess, we talked about Lennon in our most recent Beatles 60 Live, um, which is our members-only bonus chatter. It is. Which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't stand Teddy saying that at all, really. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you come to Tampa and see us sometime? Come where? Tampa, Florida. Oh, I thought you said something else. And how old are you? 32. I am. Get away. I am. Well, what prize have you got your eyes on? Well, that's why we're all here, and I'll tell you, brethren. <laughs> yes. There's more of them than there are of us. And that's why there's so few of us left. Showbiz, you know how it is. And here it is. Okay, boys and goyles. Piss on your boots. That's when I'm Gakuchka shining, wasn't it? Oh, you Have you got a nail file? These handcuffs are killing me. Rule <laughs> oh, Britannia, Britannia rules the... <laughs> 
And also, wait for it. Good job, Nigel. <laughs> yeah. Half half he goes a merry sight, our little hairy friend. Half half upon hey. the lamppost price. So light that. Half oh. in round the bend. This, the... <laughs> this one's better. Is that better? Look. I'd take one home with me. Explaining the aspects of John Lennon's humor, we had friend of the pod, Jerry, on. Yeah, we were joined by a well-known Liverpool polymath, Jerry Murphy, a musician, recording artist, a power soloist, winner of the PRS John Lennon Award for songwriting. Great man, a great poker player. <laughs> uh, he also works as an educator slash motivator. Uh, Jerry holds a degree in politics and education from York University, a master's in the Beatles' popular music and society from Liverpool Hope University, and so much more. He was founder and former director of Cavern City Tours. A fine human being. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll put a link to his bio in the show notes. All right. Here's a clip. Here's Jerry. Oh, there's no doubt that the Beatles have always been known for their senses of humor. John Lennon is particularly pointed out as being the intellectual humorist, the master of wordplay. Jerry, in thinking about how John in particular uh, came to be such a comedian, um, was it an element of post-war Britain simply being from Liverpool? How would you describe it? It's a little bit of everything. I've been inclined to answer the question uh, of the origins of Lennon's sense of humour from various points of view, his background, his education, uh, emerging and prevailing comic styles, particularly the rise of satire, um, and as connected to his emergence as a, as a raw original, as an artist. As with so much about this complex individual, my opinion has changed many times over. I've seen him in Wildean terms as a native wit, a language manipulator. As in pornographic priestess, stupid bloody Tuesday man, you've been a naughty girl. But mm -hmm. I've also tended to see him in a less flattering light. Uh, a vicious curl of a teddy boy who liked mm -hmm. to pick on the weak and torture the sensitive yeah. with words. There is another way to view him as an artist, writer, musician forever in search of an audience, just like his father before him crooning with the banjo into his mother's arms. Like the city of New York where he was destined to make home, these facets, good and bad, are all f fundamentally true. First of all, his background was riven by the contradiction of his birth and upbringing. In a city sustained by the sea where the family dislocation was common, uh, hearts would be broken. As the song says, where do all the hearts go? They go into the appreciation of the ironies of everyday life, where a flummoxed civil society was trying to impose a conformity on people whose lifestyles and experience had been defined by famine, migration and marginalisation. This, of course, that the, is, was the Liverpool that the four Beatles grew up in. The absurdity of the authority was made manifest by it, the absurdity of its representatives, mm -hmm. extended across the board from Father Bunloaf in the parish church to the blimpish mayor <laughs> and ministers who govern the common people. Mm. Hence, of course, the growth of satire as a comic form. The war was grim, but it was hilarious at the same time, believe me. British comics like Will Hay and Rob Wilton uh, had a sense of humour which started the evening off with the day war broke out, my wife turned to me and said, what are you going to do about it? 
<laughs> the notion of the small individual willingly taking on the might of the Wehrmacht was enough to send a music hall audience into paroxysms of laughter uh, to hide the terror. This was British culture whose central tenet of survival was not to stand alone on the beaches, but to not volunteer for anything. Stay out of it. Norman Wisdom would carry this one on into the 50s, but somehow he always got himself embroiled in it. That was Lennon's goonish world. Still today, Liverpool, the city where people are always on the lookout for a laugh. Perhaps to hide the essential melancholy of its Irish population base, whose history spoke of occupation, disenfranchisement, cultural and linguistic suppression. Yeah. It had come to revel in its role as the strong arms and back of the Industrial Revolution and knew that no one could be locked up for laughter. Yeah. We can say for sure that Lennon's humour was a social currency. He could make his peers laugh with just a comment, as evidence from the uncut footage from Get Back, where he states Pope basically, they died so that we may wank, <laughs> as his bandmates dissolve before him. Contrary to what we may think, Lennon was diligent in his youth. He took writing seriously, and he certainly loved the English language, whose absurd spellings and pronunciations provided him with the opportunity to lampoon. Lampoon in Italian, or lampone in Italian, means raspberry. And it could be said that his literary oeuvre was just that. The pomposity with which the language of Britlandia was regarded was ever ripe for ribaldry. Hitler had only one. <laughs> Housemaids were told to polish it behind the door. Yeah. And the Beatles' next film was to be in colour. Green. <laughs> Lennon was priceless socially and the one you'd most like to be sitting next to on the school bus. At the art college he was loved and hated in equal measure. His craziness was indulged, saw him design an artistic philosophy which was inclusive of everything, especially including rock and roll, which was a statement of rebellion in itself. He was the first among a coterie of friends, including Stuart Sutcliffe, to extend the boundaries of creation mm. to an expressionism in all of its forms, including language and dress. Put simply, Lennon was beat Mersey beat. My contention overall, therefore, is that Lennon's comedy derived from his humour, i.e. his state of mind, and was governed by his desire to escape melancholia, which had deep roots in his essential ethnicity as well as his own biography. Its manifestations were multifaceted and multifarious, as was those of Wilde, Joyce and Rob Wilton before him. As former Beatles publicist Tony Barrow has pointed out, he was fundamentally a great laugh, just like Freddie and Julia before him. Pagliacci tutti, all clowns, making the new sound familiar and the familiar sound brand new. Okay, did you understand all that scousiness? Yeah. How's that for a bunch of insights? You can hear the whole thing in the archive. Um, all members can access the live archive. I mean, if you miss a live event, these are monthly, uh, you can listen for free on the members only page. Yes. And here's Denise to tell us how. Andy and Larry appreciate those who listen all through the regular podcast episodes. 
we have a new, very cool bonus for you, an exclusive monthly event called Beatles 60 Live. The live show is audio, not video. First weekend of every month, membership is free and audio access is free. It's all free and easy. This audio doesn't appear in the normal podcast feed, but you can access it from anywhere in the world by signing up for Beatles 60 Live. Once you sign up, you'll see how easy access is. Okay, here's how you find the members page. There's just one simple little trick. See this episode notes. Find the Beatles60.group link. Open that in any browser. To get to the secret live page for members, just add live at the end. So it's Beatles60.group slash live. Again, Beatles60.group slash live. The first time you get there, you'll have to sign up. It takes just a couple of seconds. Just enter any name and valid email and you're there. Bob's your uncle. It's that straightforward. Got it? That's Beatles six zero dot group slash live. We'll email you in advance of each live so you'll know the exact time to listen specified in most world time zones. And you'll have a convenient invitation link sent to you privately. You'll find stuff easily using the members only navigation. Dead simple once you're in. Full live event information is all there. If you have any trouble, just contact Andy. He can give you the link privately or resend the confirmation email or whatever. Members who missed the live event can listen later. We'll archive each one on the Beatles 60 Live page. You can just choose a past date, hit the play button, and listen anytime. Hope you can join. Okay, now, whenever the first recording at EMI in June is mentioned, what do we hear? Talk of Pete's doom. That's all we're going to hear <laughs> on social media. It's, yeah, uh, I'm coming to dread that, what's going to happen in the next couple of months. But we're obviously going to have to deal with it, you know, between now and August. For the time being, we can mention that it is true, as everyone likes to talk about, that Ron Richards and George Martin were unhappy with Pete's drumming. But the great importance that some people put on that is really out of proportion. They did not demand or even have the right to demand that Pete be fired. It was simply a business decision in terms of the recording. Pete wouldn't be allowed to play on the recordings. They would use a session drummer. Anything beyond that, playing live, you know, photos photo shoots, anything. That was on John, Paul, and Cheeky, not Parlophone. Uh, it was commonplace for recordings to make use of studio drummers, uh, as we heard from Tim Summer in the past. Let's review that. Okay, let's hear Tim. I'm going to concretely disprove this myth and toss it out of the window for all eternity in six syllables. Bobby Graham and Clem Catini. This idea may seem supremely foreign to any band that came of age in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. When a self-contained pop-rock combo arrived at a major London recording studio for a session in the early and mid-1960s, 
there was virtually zero expectation that the drummer they walked in with would be playing on that finished record. This is the reason that Graham and Catini play on almost every pop, rock, and beat record of the era. Even a cursory list would double the length of what I have to say. Suffice to say that Graham, in particular, is the sound of the British invasion. The snap and oomph he brings to nearly all of the early hits of The Kinks, Them, The Dave Clark Five, The Pretty Things, The Animals, Herman's Hermits, etc., help define the sound of the genre itself. It would have been extremely unlikely that an experienced producer like George Martin, working for a gigantic company like EMI, would consider using an unproven drummer on a session. Nor would Martin have ever used that as the basis to fire a drummer. What bands did in the studio and what they did on stage were considered entirely different parishes. The studio was Parlophone's concern. The live performances, the domain of the band, their management, their booking agent, and the promoter. And there's zero evidence that any promoter ever said, dump that Pete Best. Now, let's marvel over the randomish luck of the Beatles and Parlophone ending up with each other. Andy, was it inevitable that the Beatles would be matched with Sir George? <laughs> was it predestination that they would be uniquely compatible collaborators? This is Beatles 60. What if Beatles plus Nori Paramore does Revolver ever happen? Or Jerry and the Pacemakers plus George Martin actually does happen in the future. But again, what was their Revolver? You know, the matchup of, of Sir George and the Beatles, or Parlophone and Beatles, it's like, it's like uh, peanut butter and chocolate, you know? That's <laughs> wonderful, yeah. Um, well, at the risk of alienating uh, many of our of our listeners, I'm going to put this out there. I am not one to believe uh, in fate or predestination. Uh, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, I don't mean any insult to religious any religion or religious no, no. Uh, people, but I think you can you can be sort of religious and scientific at the same time. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's just, and, and I think history is much more like evolution than like you know creation. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> al although we create our history, I guess mm, I don't know. Well, that's a bigger topic. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> and in this case, it, with this kind of thing, I I think of it more like a puzzle. You know, that may or may not get completed. It's either you're going to finish it or it's going to sit there on your table. Mm. You know, half mm. done and never finished. In the case of the Beatles, it certainly did get finished mm. every piece falling right into place but with that in mind uh my thoughts on a couple of those questions yeah uh the idea of the beatles plus nori paramore uh being label mates with cliff richard <laughs> that gives me it gives me nightmares uh and no revolver would never happen <laughs> 
Um, right. Now, George Martin turning Jerry and the Pacemakers into a superpower and an experimental recording group, recording Revolution Number 8. <laughs> um, that I would have loved to hear. <laughs> but what is clear is that why ever or however in a cosmic context the Beatles and George Martin came to be together, the story would not be the same if it hadn't happened that way. And I can't imagine that the story could have been even close to as incredible. I mean, just to restate it, in case uh, some listeners haven't been listening to our past episodes, Parlophone was a unique label in, in, in so many ways because quickly what? Comedy, um, experimental music, Ray Cathode, electronic music. Uh, Backward tape loops and things. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he was already doing Revolver, you know, in case people don't understand. Right, exactly. The things that the Beatles would eventually use. He was, George Martin was already into it. And nobody else was really doing it. I guess right. Alvin and the Chipmunks were doing sped up voices. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alvin! <laughs> this is Beatles The human past is full of, like like you say, incomplete puzzles. Hmm. There are so many artists and labels that some matchups are, by chance, bound to work well. You know, just like in evolution, some things are just bound to happen because there's so many individuals in a species or whatever. You know, speciation is bound to happen. One or two puzzles will be completed, <laughs> no matter what, you know? Yeah. So that's how biography happens, let's say. And these artists will dominate the charts and rock our world. And it happened to be the Beatles. It's, it's so unlikely, so unexpected that it feels like magic. It inspires awe. But it happened because it happened. Um, well, as we pass through our 60 years ago timeline, we'll see that the decade of the 1960s itself was a perfect element in the story, perfect timing. We could get into some wilder, imagined counterfactuals like, what if the Beatles were born 60 years later? <laughs> <laughs> Would they be like an emo group now? Yeah. And what if Wet Leg were born 60 years earlier and worked with <laughs> Sir George at Parlophone? <laughs> I do really have a great indebtedness to Wet Leg for making sure that I understood that the proper pronunciation is chaise long and not chaise lounge. <laughs> so I love those guys. Um, Excuse me? <laughs> what? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> what? <laughs> You're supposed to say, what? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and now everybody's going to be like, okay, yes, everybody go look up Shays Long by Wet Leg now if you have not heard. It is one of the greatest songs, you know, in the last few years. They could have been bigger than the Beatles. Yeah. The mind boggles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, those are just uh, silly thought experiments. Um, what happened is what happened. Yeah. And that's where we can all agree, you know, <laughs> whether you're scientific or religious or... I don't know, conspiratorial or whatever. Right. And 60 years later, we're still telling the story. And so much of it involves songwriting, charisma, 
and serendipitous twists and turns. That is about it for for this episode, isn't it? <laughs> Yuppers. All right. Well, um, thanks so much to Jerry Murphy and to Tim Summer. Thanks to Eric Howell for providing the voices of Sir and Cheeky. You all need to check out Eric's A Day in Their Life at Beetledrama.com. Do it now. Uh, thanks to Denise for explaining uh, our live bonus chats. Uh, thanks very much to everyone for listening. I'm off to Hamburg, uh, so I'll have lots to say next time. Uh, take care, Larry. I'll talk to you soon. Gute Reise, mein Herr. Hmm. <laughs> Ariana Grande here. <laughs> and I wanted to say I love the Beatles 60 podcast because, you know, following the Beatles in 1962, each episode gives you a look into our world. <laughs> Peace and love. But if you want to gain real insight into the group's development and rise, real understanding of how, you know, those lovable mop tops experienced it, the only way is to follow their incredible rise to fame daily with photos and stuff. Yeah, I'm telling you, that's how you do it. <laughs> Peace and love. 60 years ago now is 1962. Following this year in particular gives us so much insight Various sources are providing exactly these 1962 details every day now on social media. I'll give you the four best sources. Are you ready? Get a pen. I'll wait. <laughs> no, no, I'm done waiting. So you can write these down, okay? You ready? Okay, let's see. There's the award-winning Barmy Beetle blog. Oh, that Barmy Beetle blog. Next. I follow the Twitter account at 60 Years Ago Today and definitely join the amazing Facebook group also called It Was 60 Years Ago Today. It's buzzing, man. <laughs> and my personal favourite, the only audio drama of the Beatles story in existence. This is the one, the only one, and it's called 
A Day in Their Life, an audio drama of the Beatles story, which takes you back even further, 64 years ago, to be precise. Will you still need them? Groovers listen. The interwebs are full of empty infotainment and the same old, same old about Beatles trivia. You deserve the real story. And what a trip! <laughs> Go deeper every day with these Beatles 60 related online thingies. The story from here just gets more amazing for you every day. Peace and love. I'm out. Ariana Grande. <laughs> How do you say it? I can't put a Ariana Grande. Sounds like I'm getting myself a cup of coffee or something. Ariana Grande. I'll take an Ariana. Can I get an Ariana Grande? No cream. Hold the sugar. <laughs> peace and love. Peace and love. This is Brian, or Epi, as the boys are fond of calling me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Beatles 60. The Beatles, at their heart, are storytellers. I'd like to invite you to go even deeper into their story by listening to another program called A Day in Their Life, an audio drama of the Beatles' story. Both Andy and Lawrence agree, it's simply marvellous. For details, visit Beatledrama.com or see the show notes for this Beatles 60 episode for the link. Thank you. And you get a members-only jacket. Paul is late to the meeting. Confound it. Epi, control yourself or you're spurred. You know, when he became enlightened. Who the hell was that? <laughs> Who let him into the studio? Don't recognize that voice. Go on, go on, George. Is that right? Predestination? I think okay. it is. All right. What are you talking about? This didn't sound right. Okay. Are you tripping? Uh, yeah, maybe so. It's, <laughs> it's this topic, you know? <laughs> okay. So. I was busy having my affair and really didn't care what they sounded like. I just was ready for a day trip out to the country. If you know what I mean. <laughs> Love me, wah! Okay. Yeah. Now it's going to be Eric as Jerry Lewis as George Martin. <laughs> Cliff and Ray Cathode and Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Channel uh, at their first important meeting back at NEMS up in Liverpool. Um, when they were negotiating the basic contract or just, or it, maybe it wasn't the contract. It was just their first, his, his sort of, what was it? What? <laughs>